Daniel 8 is one of the most unusual passages in the Bible, but it is also one of the most important. The book of Daniel is also extremely important, and we may not get through this tonight. We may take two weeks with Daniel 8, because it does something that very few verses in the Bible do. God, with this chapter, tells us near prophecy, things that are going to happen within the lives of those who would read this freshly from God through Daniel to them. This book is also one that is, uh, let's say, discussed and uh, handled. Handled is not a very good word. Try to handle by those who really believe your word and those who hate it. Uh, I can remember speaking on the book of Daniel at SMU, and uh, the people in the class came, Campus Crusade put this on, we had about 400 freshmen, but when we got through with it, they were all excited, they loved the Lord, and they were excited, but they told us that they also just had Daniel in their Bible class, and those people were not excited about Daniel. Well, we can be excited about it, because with it, God tells us two things what he is going to do in the near view and the far view, and secondly, why we can depend on all of this book being his word without error in the original manuscripts. We're going to touch on that a little bit as we go. We'll also deal with what Daniel is going to find out for himself because he is like us if we read it for the first time. God gives him this and it really shakes him up. Now, what we must know about this is it really only has 27 verses. But these 27 verses are jammed full of things that just are vitally important. Mainly, it presents the uh, end. Well, you say, what end? Actually, two ends. The first end is the end of the what we would call the Gentile powers they come to an end, and that end is when the Messiah comes to Israel and offers himself. That, of course, happened in 4 B.C. He was born, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, born a man. And that is touched on in here, and that would have been the time of the coming of the Lord. We wouldn't have a second coming had Israel said, Lord, we accept you. As we go through this, I do want to say that we're going to be dealing with what we call the intertestamental period. And that basically is the uh, time from about 404 B.C. down to uh, 4 B.C., or from 400 to uh, basically 4 B.C. It's a period that we have no scripture written in that time, that is called the Word of God, but what we have in 8 is all about that time. We call it the intertestamental period. It is of a huge importance, and that is what we will be looking at. And what we're going to discover it is that God offered His Son, and that was a legitimate offer. If they had said yes, we would not be here. Now, God's in His long-range plan, no knew we would be here, and we've trusted in him, and we're thankful for that. But it was a legitimate offer to the people uh, that were back in Israel. 
Remember, Israel had been uh, taken captive by the Babylonians. Judah had, and we have to look mainly at Judah, the northern kingdoms all around, but God focuses on Judah. And then they are brought back. They come back in uh, 539, back to the land of what we would call Judah, the tribe of Judah held, and the city of Jerusalem. And they come back, and they're godly people in this era, in this time. Some in the north, some in the south, some of the Jews were not taken away. They had stayed, some came back in other areas. But as we look at it, we know there were some extremely righteous and God's righteousness people. And we see some of them, of course, as we come to the uh, beginning of what we call the New Testament, the birth of our Lord. We see people uh, like Mary and Joseph, of course, who will be the, Mary will be the legitimate earthly mother and Joseph will be the stepfather of our Lord. We see uh, the uh, others that come into our Lord's life, the uh, John the Baptist and his parents. And of course, they were loving the Lord. You look at Luke 1, and I love it because John's uh, father is a priest. Anybody tell me his name? Zechariah. Zachariah. That's right, Zechariah. Zechariah is one of my favorite people. You know, he's, he's just, these were everyday folks. It's very important to understand that. Now there were some people who weren't just everyday, everybody, since they were really important. People like Nicodemus, as we would say in Greek, but we'd say Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, he did not know the Lord, but he, he was open and he came to the Lord, as you can. And you see others who are Joseph of Arimathea, one of the richest men in the Middle East, who love the Lord. But we also have people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I love Zechariah. He spent his whole life to uh, serving the Lord as a priest. He was one of the orders of priests. And he, his time came and he got to go. And then they chose him to go up and offer sacrifice on that altar. Uh, it's a circular one with, with feet, as it were, right before the veil, six-inch uh, thick veil, and behind it, of course, was where only the high priest went, and that was only once a year, and that was the Holy of Holies. But in front of it, you have the holy place. And John got to, John's father got to go there. Probably uh, it was the only time in his life he got to do it. And he gets in there, and this is just an everyday priest. Everybody, oh yeah, that's old John. He lives over uh, in a place very much like Lano, by the way, about that size town. It's in the hill country. It says that in the scripture. And there's a, you know, he, he, he labors faithfully there. When he goes up, everybody says, well, who, what priest is that? And, well, that's, uh, that, that's Zechariah. He lives in the hill, hill country. But, and he's excited. This is probably all the time he'll get to do it. And he gets in there, and everything is fairly well set. You have on one side, you have the, uh, ar the uh, altar, the uh, menorah that burned night and day. On the other side you have the table that carries the show, the showbread and these are there and he would go in and he could as it were see these and he could see the curtain that divided that area from where the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant was. But on this particular day you remember God had a shop for John and I look at our, our town and 
you know, some of you are a lot better known than others, and uh, some of us are just regular folk here. But there's no regular folk with God. Everybody who trusts Him is terribly important. And you may find yourself sometime in a position like John where you're standing there doing this one thing you look you really look forward to, but all of a sudden there, is a, there seems to be an extra piece of furniture in the holy place. And it's, not, it's living, and you finally realize it's a human in shape, but it's glowing, and it's an angel of God. And so he is there and meets him. And that's the kind of people, yeah, if you have others, a lot of them who are really bad people, as in all times. But this is the world that our Lord was born into. And that was his first coming, and it would have been the real one had they accepted him. Now, when we get to Easter, we're going to do something special that week. And you don't want to miss that. And don't miss these two either. They're sort of important scriptures. They're very important. But you remember in Easter, uh, the Lord on Sunday, I hold it Sunday that it was the uh, triumphal entry. We call it that. I, had a, I have a close friend who's in the, in the glory now in the presence of the Lord, Harold Honer, one of the brightest Man, man I've known, he's a PhD from uh, Oxford, uh, but he's with the Lord now. He thinks it's Monday. Well, when we get to heaven, I'm going to find out whether it was uh, the uh, triumphally was on Sunday or Monday. And maybe, maybe it was Easter Monday. I, I don't like to argue with Harold because I always lost, used to lose. <laughs> so anyway, but we... Uh, they, they, there were people there just like us. Some were more important to the people around them, but to God, all of them were important. And so as we study this, realize that we are studying and looking into the lives of people just like you and me. Now, when we come to the chapter 8, we are, of course, coming toward the end of the life of one of the, well, very special people in the Bible. And uh, we know that because an angel tells him, Daniel, you are greatly treasured by God. I do not know that where that is said of anyone else. Now, I know David was greatly treasured. I'm studying doing his life right now, and it is incredible. But Daniel, is, he is equally important. Now, when we come to this chapter, as I said, it only has 27 verses. The first one in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, King, uh, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Probably this is about uh, 550 uh, BC, the, the third year of Belshazzar. Uh, there are people that make, they're all, you know, two or three years, and I'll give you what I hold, it's close to that. We know he will be there and reign until 539. And we'll talk about him in just a second. But I want you to understand this chapter so we can see how everything is going to unfold and understanding it is part of that. Now, when we look at it, we know that uh, this particular chapter is coming very much uh, after Daniel had been involved in all what I call the big stuff. You know, he came there as a student. He went to Nebuchadnezzar University doctoral program. 
three-year program, graduated magna cum cum, and everybody, he was really something. And he finally, under Nebuchadnezzar, was the, as it were, the uh, second in power and command in the whole kingdom. And we know that's true. But eventually God took Nebuchadnezzar, who became a believer, took him into his presence and left Daniel there. And the new people, the new rulers that are in the line of, of Nebuchadnezzar, that's really how you say his name, they didn't have that much uh, to do with Daniel. They were not impressed with all of that. So he got demoted. And uh, we don't know what he was doing. We know he was demoted from chapter 8. If you look at the last verse in it, it says that, uh, verse 27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was... Uh, uh, astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. This term, the king's business, does not mean royal business. It just means you're one of the people who served the king. He, he may have been, as it were, polishing uh, those gray bricks in the wall or you, know, you don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't where he used to be. But that didn't bother Daniel. Daniel was there to serve the king. And it's wonderful to run into people like Daniel. It helps us tell us no matter where we are or what we're doing, if we are given to serve him, it's an important day. And Daniel knew that. I have but, a question. Yes, ma'am. About Belshazzar the king, this is the guy that saw the writing on the wall. Yes, it is. Okay, just wondering. But this yeah, is he saw that at 539. Yeah. He saw the one, many, many tickle, uh, but this comes measured, measured, and, and wanting. Yeah, and we might, let's just talk about him for uh, a moment. What we have going on here, and we'll run through this, is of course Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king. There were two Babylonian kingdoms. There was the old Babylon, first Babylonian one and Babylonian two. Babylonian two, that became a world power, one of the four great world powers that would come on the earth in that time period. And this one was really the first one that God would measure. And this, his father would be the uh, king. And his father was uh, uh, the uh, Nabonidus. He was the king over Babylon. And his son, Belteshazzar, was the leading general. And he was a great general. We don't study that usually, but he, he, he won great things. Anyway, his when his father passes away and Daniel becomes, is brought in 606 back from Jerusalem, what the, what the king would do, uh, the Babylonians, they were very sharp in government. They, they ran a good, good governmental system. And one of the things they did when they conquered a nation, they would find the brightest and best young people and they would bring them back a certain number. I don't know how they knew, but the, you were getting a free PhD, and as I said, Nebuchadnezzar, you. And they would come back with him, and they would study for three years, and then they would get their degree. And in those three years, Daniel became well-known, first because I think he made all alphas out of, well, in Babylonian, it's in Aramaic, but they still had alphas. He made all A's. And he was magna cum and all those good things. But the other thing was he was a man who held 
probably 16 to 18 years. We do not know exactly how old he was, but that would be about right. And he, as it were, was a man who held to his principles. He served the king well, but when it came something that clashed with his God, with the Lord God that he worshipped, he wouldn't do it. Now, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't like some of our politicians, some of like us, I'm not going to do that, you can't make me. He would say, I'll do this, but I won't do that. He was a very gracious man. And of course, he wouldn't eat the king's choice food. Believe me, it was choice. Well, the reason he wouldn't eat, that's in chapter one, is they served it to the gods first, and what was left over, they, got, they served to all the royalty and all the students. Well, the gods didn't eat much, so, uh, but Daniel said, I'm not going to eat it. So the, his, the guy who was the dean, uh, Alice of the school, uh, he said, look, look you're going to cause me to lose my head. He wasn't kidding about that. That, that was the end of the day. <coughs> he said, well, he says, you, you, I, I'll eat what you give me, but I won't eat this. He says, I'll give you vegetables, and he ate vegetables. Now, I, I, I probably would have sinned the first time there because I don't like vegetables nearly as much as I like the king's best. But that was Daniel. From there, he went straight up, and he did a lot of wonderful things. When we come to this point, though, we're in the third year, as I said, of Belshazzar, about 550 B.C., and Daniel is just one of the guys, but it, not with God. The longer he's there and the less uh, important he seems to be with men, the more important he seems to be with God. And so we have him, and that's what we'll begin to look at. Now, we need to talk a little bit about Persia at this point because we want to understand it. So let's go on. and uh, Phyllis Ann, would you read us verses uh Read one through four for us. Let's just make that effort. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Eula Canal. That's the river. Then I lifted up my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power or his hand, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. At this point, Daniel is at the changing of the guard. A new kingdom is taking over, and of course it is the Medo-Persian, and that is why you have this figure of this ram and it has two horns, one horn longer than the other. The longest horn, of course, goes with the king of Persia, who actually got to be king over all Persia and Media and made it one nation by beating granddaddy in a battle. I thought that was a little, uh, he, he beat his grandfather in a war. I hope he didn't do anything bad to him. I, I'm glad my grandfather didn't fight me. Anyway, there, there he is, or my grandsons don't. But he, he, was now he had now taken over. 
and he was running things. And he was going to take a lot of uh, property. In fact, he would basically take rulership of the ancient world, mainly that which is along the Fertile Crescent there where you have the two rivers. And he takes this. Now, in 539, this all begins. That's the first thing we need to know about him. Now, he is going to uh, rule from, as it were, uh, he's already ruling when it falls. Actually, he takes over at 550, long before he took Babylon, and he will rule till 529 B.C. Then he will uh, go and they'll have the next Babylonian ruler. We won't go into all of them, but we will meet one of them, Belshazzar, and his father, uh, Nabonidus. At any rate, what is going on in Babylon is that they are under now the Persian Empire. And Cyrus turns out to be a very remarkable man. You can study him and find him in Isaiah. So Isaiah talks about him, and it's prophetic for Isaiah. Actually, he would live toward much of this. At any rate, this particular king, Cyrus, is the one that will let the Jews go back. And that is a huge thing. And he will, as soon as he takes them, he lets them start going back. And that's in 539. And if you want to read about this, and I'm just going to give you the passage, you can look at first the uh, book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra talks about the Jews going back to Judah. And it's just Judah. It's just the southern kingdom as we think of it. You also can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36, 22, and 23. And he really uh, lets them go back. Now, they have to put everything together, and they will go back in two major returns. And you can read about them again in Ezra. And in Ezra, you're going to read about some other neat people, Belshazzar and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is really going to be the first governor over them. He let them go back, but they didn't become an independent kingdom. They were under Persia. And he, he was a good guy. And they did well under there. And it's then that they were able to start doing something when they went back. What was it? Building walls. Huh? Building walls. Walls later. They hold on to the wall. Yeah, that's all. But the temple. Temple, yeah. And then the wall. The first thing is the temple. They're going to be... And they finally complete that in about 516. And we won't go through that, but if you study the book of Ezra, Ezra's, by the way, a scribe. And his work is wonderful. He doesn't go till the second coming back. They have two groups that go back in two ways. But at any rate, Ezra records that, and they build the temple about 516. But there's another guy that comes back, and he's, he is a somebody in the kingdom. And who was this? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. That's our wall guy. He, he comes back and yeah, he, you can still see some of that wall. We will one of these days before we leave this do a slideshow. Not, we're not going to bore you to death, but we can show you part of the wall that Nehemiah built. And it's really something. And so these, this is what's going on there. Now, so you have the Jews. They're back. The Persians have let them go back. And things, uh, this is what is going to come after this. Now, 
we do not really see too much of that in this. We know the picture of the ram. We know that he is uh, uh, the uh, one that is the Medo-Persian Empire, and we talk about him. And uh, we go down, then all of a sudden everything is fine with him until uh, it, it says, I saw come beside the ram, and he was uh, enraged at him. And what, is, what one is that? Sounds in verse 6. What animal comes next? Fill this red. Is that the goat? Goat. Goat, yeah. This is goat country. Now, my son, our youngest son, is a West Point graduate, and of course, the big outing every year is the mule and the goat. And that's an army playing Navy. Navy has a goat, an army has a mule. And so, uh, I don't think they were playing games there, but that, that is what happened. By the way, if you want to read uh, a lot of, uh, of what the, brought the second temple together and how it was put together, you read the little book of Haggai. Now, when that comes, at this point, the prophecy, as it were, begins. Now, the wall will go up in 444, and that really would happen, but... Uh, we got to know that from uh, the uh, uh, time of uh, 604, which is basically when Daniel, or 609, Daniel went back, probably 606, to 404 is really what we call the intertestamental period. And you have these nations, you have first, you have the, uh, the, uh, Medo-Persian Empire that comes. Then you have others that are coming. You have next the uh, people that we just mentioned. And, and, uh, who were they? The Greeks. The Greeks, yeah. The Greeks come and we have the Greeks and then we will have uh, the, Romans. the Romans. That's right. And these four, remember, we've already seen this. He, God has already shown Daniel that you're going to have a head of gold, chapter 2, which is the one way to look at these four empires, and then, and then the silver, arms, shoulders of silver, then the brass and bronze, which is the, again, it gets to the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, empire and, uh, or, I mean the Greek Empire, and then finally you have the uh, Roman Empire, and you have the two legs that go down to the toes, and they are ten toes, because eventually Rome will be made up of ten nations. We won't get back on that tonight, but that's what's happened. Now, but what we want to pick up is what happens uh, now that they have the Babylonians out of there. And that will help us understand what's coming. And as we said, the uh, Greeks are the ones who now go on. They win the day, and they defeat the... Uh, is that the goat? Yeah, okay. the Medo-Persians. And uh, you notice it says in verse 8, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken in its place, and there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now we're going to look at these because they've all affected us. And you say, well, we've, uh, that's a long time ago. Well, first know that this is a look at the empire of Greece. And the Greek Empire is the one that would uh, finally uh, beat the Medo-Persians and, and really send them home. He, he really de dealt with them. Alexander the Great. 
eventually with Alexander, but actually Philip had beat, they'd already were retreating under, against Philip. Philip, that's a good thing. Philip was the first uh, Greek king. He really was over, there are two parts of Greece proper, Achaia and uh, uh, Macedonia. And Philip was over, really, Macedonia, the north, but he eventually took the whole thing. But then his uh, son comes along, and he is something else. And he takes over at 23 years of age. And we'll say a little bit more about him. We'll give you his dates and so forth. But he is going to, as it were, conquer the world. He will be the first one to truly do that. He conquered anything that he tried to take over, and he did that. And so the goat comes, and that is the becoming of the Greek Empire. Now, when he comes, we've already got a world that's very much influenced by the Greeks. And the old ancient world all the way through the Romans are influenced by the Greeks. And we're still influenced by the Greeks today. And it really, really is. If you go to seminary and then keep going there, you're going to really be, because you're going to spend your life in, in Greek as a language, and uh, I'm not recommending you do that, but it keeps Greece in my mind. <laughs> At any rate, so you have this, these, now the Greeks long before they took over things, they were influencing. First, if you went to the city of Babylon and see the old city, and if I can ever find my old computer, I've got it in picture form, the remains of Babylon. But you're going to see buildings that have Corinthian columns and Doric and Ionic columns. That is the caps, the caps in the, in the columns. And those are not Babylonian. They're Greek. It's a Greek city. Babylon was a Greek city. You look at that city, it was Greek architecture. The second thing you see is if you study the, the history and the writings and so forth that remain from the Babylonian period, you'll find that uh, they, you have Greek culture. And one of the most interesting Greek cultures is the uh, Greek musical forms, and because they have Greek musical instruments. And these, when you have chapter three and all these instruments they're playing and all the horn and the satchma, those are Greek, they're not Babylonian. The Babylonians were like the Romans, they were eclectic. They got everything that was good for everybody else. They never came up with much good themselves, but they, they could get grab what everybody else had. And so the Greeks, then you have the commerce. And Greece, really, Babylon, in fact, the whole ancient world traveled on the Greek system of travel and way of doing things. And their shipping, their, their whole bit. And uh, they also, if you went to Babylon, your first day, you'd like when we take people overseas, I said, well, you get some money, Jane. They go in there and they, they have so much money, particularly go to Israel, because we used to be that the dollar was not, not now, but when we first started going, you got uh, four or five uh, pounds, Greek, uh, Israeli pounds, they call them pounds, and for one dollar, and people take a hundred dollars, come back and have all this money. They were so excited. <laughs> well, the, the Greeks were running the world at this point, and in Babylon, if you want to change your silver or gold, you're going to get Kesed Yabin. And Kesed Yabin is what that, the literal translation 
and the uh, language of, Babylon, of the Babylonians was it, it is uh, Greek currency. That's the best way to say it. And so the Greek world had already found its place. Secondly, militarily, the uh, Greeks and the Persians really fought it out. And you have with them the, I know Persia is considered, you know, God says it's what, the first great empire, but, and then you have the Medo-Persian, but then you come to the Greeks, and the Greeks really, in my opinion, had the first worldwide empire that, that was known by everybody. They defeated the, first they had to defeat the Persians. And they defeated the Persians. <laughs> They defeated the Persians in um, really four battles, five battles if you count, I count four, but it's all right. The first one was at Marathon. Now, of course, Greece is right here. That's, that's Achaia, and above it is Macedonia. And this is the, uh, the water between the Greek, the uh, Aegean Sea. And Athens is right there. And what happened was the, the battles that took place with the, with the uh, Persians started right close to Athens, just above Athens, up at a place right here called Marathon. And they had, a, had, a, had the Battle of Marathon. And Marathon had a, had a very distinct mountain range. <laughs> Secondly, you have Thermopylae, which was a pass, which is just over, it's a little bit, uh, to, as it were, uh, west of there. It's right in that area. They're really in the same area. And that's the famous one. If you see the movies about uh, Greece, you see, uh, this happened at 480. You see Xerxes fight with his uh, troops, and he fights uh, Leonidas, who has 300. Xerxes had 7,000 soldiers, and, and poor Leonidas, you really say Leonidas, Leonidas in Greek. Anyway, he had 300, but they won, and that was a huge win. Then finally you have the Battle of Salamis, which was the, the naval battle. By the way, Marathon was really basically a naval battle. It took place really about right here, right off the coast. The other one, Salamis, is a little bay right here. Uh, the port of Athens is all called Piraeus. It opens up on that bay. But that was one where, uh, we won't get into this tonight, but you had all kind of uh, predictions. The oracle of uh, uh, Delphi, the Delphi oracle said that the, the Greeks were going to win by wooden walls. Everybody thought, well, we better build walls around the, uh, uh, the uh, for fortress that was above Athens. And uh, so they did. But that's what, what they fought. What, what did they defeat with? Ships. Ships, that's right. They, the Greeks had really great ships. They were fast. They could move. And here came the poor Persians huffing and puffing with their big square ships. And the Greeks just beat the tar out of them. And Salamis. The final two battles are at Plataea, which is right on the coast, and then you go over, this is the first move over to where, to the land that is the land of Persia, the new Persian Empire, and really the city of uh, Nikali. Plataea is on the 
in Achaia and Greece, and the, you can see what's happening. The uh, Persians are not doing too well, so they're getting out of Dodge. They're going to have a little further. Finally, they go across the Aegean Sea and they come back to a town that was just a little bit north of the coast that runs where the river runs up to Ephesus. This is not 10 miles from Ephesus, and, or Ephesus as we say it, and that was Mikali. And they beat them all the way back there. Once that happened, the game was over. And so the Greeks are running the show. Now, I don't think we, we don't need to get into the Greek literature, I don't think, today. Thank you. <laughs> but I do want to pick up, now the Greeks are running the world, and uh, we mentioned that uh, Philip was of Macedonia, was the one who really uh, had a fast-moving army, and his son picked that up from him. And uh, he, he had an army that in, in Daniel 7 is pictured as a leopard and uh, with wings. Now. Alexander is the one that makes a big difference. Alexander is born in up in the Macedonia. He's born in five or three fifty six. He will die in three twenty three. He didn't live very long, but he conquered more land than any other person in history for the time period that he did it with what he had. He was an amazing, amazing guy. He had a wonderful infantry and an even more wonderful, uh, as it were, cavalry. And they would hit and they, they, nobody could stop them. And he defeats the Persians and finally he drives the Persians all the way back into the heart of Persia. And that would be, he drives them back to right in here. And this was Persia. This is the, the, the Persia. Right here on a river called the Granicus River. And he defeated them at the Granicus, and that was it for Persians. They had one last gas, and that from here, Granicus is up here. Right down here, there's another, it's a river, but it's also a town called Issus. And that was the last defeat of the Persians. And they How many were, years involved here? 20? Okay, I'll give you exact time. I, I, that uh, they fought... Uh, Granicus in 334, that was his first big win. And then they, uh, he fought Issus at 333 the next year. Wow. And then he dies in uh, the uh, 323. And what he did, that's a good question. About uh, Philip says, don't get married. And he says, I love all this stuff. And people say, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> but I don't want to do that too. He actually, from here, goes around and goes up into India. And he went into India, and then he comes back by the Fertile Crescent. He comes back, and he comes to Babylon, and he actually stopped. They, they were controlling all of that. And he dies of swamp fever in, ba in Babylon. Well, he went... So he also got into Israel. Oh, yeah, oh, I didn't mention him. Yeah, listen. Well, he goes all the way to Egypt, too, doesn't he? Yeah, he went to Egypt, but Egypt was right next door. Yeah, he, he went to Egypt. He would, he didn't fight, have to fight there. He went to Egypt. He went over to... Then he, he, he went to Israel, and the uh, 
This was in uh, 332. And he goes to Israel, he goes to Jerusalem, and the high priest meets him because he had read the book of Daniel. I guess he's one of the good guys. He had read and he comes and he shows him Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And when he saw that, Alexander spared Jerusalem. In fact, blessed it because he had seen that. He does go to Egypt. He goes down to Elephantine. And that's, that's a... Talk about Egypt just a moment. Sorry about that. You don't have to get too into it. Well, yeah. Elephantine is, a, is an island in the Nile. And we've been on Elephantine Island. But this is where all the Jews who were taken captive by Babylon, the ones that didn't get to go to Babylon from Judah, they wound up going to Egypt up to Elephantine. And they were sent there. And then, and actually before that, when the northern kingdom went down in 722, some of them sent there. So they had a large Jewish community in Egypt. And uh, that's not why he went there. He went there because Egypt was, you know, one of the ancient empires. So that we have Alexander, as it were, taking the world. Now, uh, he died at, as we said, 33. And he really, nobody has surpassed him. I love to read uh, works on him. If you'd like a short work, it's really interesting. It's written by a lady, uh, uh, Barbara Seville. And uh, I'll bring it next time and you can see it. And just put Seville. And she's got two, and I don't think, can't think of her anything. But she, does, she writes a book on Alexander the Great, and it's, I think, the best short story. If you want a long one, I can give you the long ones, too. We have those. So this gives us the setup at this point. Now, we are coming into the intertestamental period and we're going to start seeing what happens to Israel or to Judah. And they're the ones that are back. And when Alexander dies... Verse 8 points on that. Yeah, we're going to do it right now, just a second. Dies, uh, the, uh, why don't you read 8 again for us, darling? Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty... The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, these four horns are four generals yeah. under Alexander. And the first one is Ptolemy Legus. He uh, was a general that was, he would, when, the, when Alexander died, he was given control of Egypt and southern Syria, and so they really is not too far from Israel. It's, he's going to be right, he's over here, and uh, Syria's up here. But anyway, he controls this area, sort of like a year going, going over into Egypt. The second one is Lysimachus, and he uh, takes trace in Western Asia, and we won't bother to go up, that goes up. You go up to Macedonia and go right, and then go, as it were, uh, straight to the east rather than the west. And anyway, the next one is uh, Seleucid Medicator. He has northern Syria. Now that becomes important in Phrygia, because northern Syria is right up here. Israel is here, and northern Syria is right up. It goes up like this and over in here. Then finally you have Cassander who has Macedonia and Greece. He has the homeland. Now, 
that is, these four are going to make a big difference, and one of them is going to uh, be the one that brings the, as it were, the Greek Empire uh, to its uh, end of expansion. And that comes, and uh, we'll deal with that at 9 through 14. Why don't you read that if you would, Brent? 9 through 14. Okay. To the Lord our God belong mercy. No, no, no. no, no. no, no. Eight, eight, nine, right? eight, 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 nine. Oh. Chapter eight, verse nine. Oh, chapter eight. Where am I? I was in nine. Well, right. oh, boy, you'll love nine when we get there. <laughs> That's us today. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the palace of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay. We're going to hit that next week. This, this is key because we are now at the point where we start seeing the formation of the people of God in Judah when our Lord returns. And what we're going to find is that they uh, had to fight one that looks very much like the one we meet in the Revelation. And uh, we get over around chapters 13, 12, 13, 14. We also get into Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And we, ca we have another name for him. What is it? The Antichrist. Oh, Antichrist. That's right. Now, many people believe that this account that we've just read, that Brent has just read to us, is an account looking way forward, way into the future to the second coming, or to the Antichrist, who Christ deals with at his second coming. I, it, it, I do not think that's true, and in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not true. What we are seeing, though, is something that could have been, because we said that the Jews responded, they would, the Lord would have come. But they don't, and so what it winds up being is like a type or a prophetic photograph of what's finally going to come. And the end that's talked about here first is the end of when the Greeks are now defeated and the this Antichrist one, and the Antichrist one is is uh, got another name. And uh, anybody tell me what it is? Seleucid Antiochus. 
Because this is so loose. There were four of them. Yeah, I know y'all really needed to know that. But this is the, is the guy who is the type of the Antichrist. Now, he could have been the Antichrist had the Jews responded. But they didn't. And so he, he is yet, but he is a picture of the Antichrist. And he is going to, as it were, take over. He takes over what uh, the, uh, the, that uh, Ptolemy Legus had, Egypt and southern Syria. And he takes over what Seleucid Minicator had, northern Syria and West Phrygia. And he also comes in and he takes over <laughs> down below Syria. He comes into Israel and down to Judah, and he wants to take Judah, and he comes to Jerusalem. And this is where it happens. And that is what we want to look at. And by the way, that is something else we'll take up next time, is this is something that is predicted with great accuracy. I mean, we are, you know, we are at a time of uh, about before it comes, about 160 years yeah. before it'll come. And that is why those who don't believe the Bible is ever supernatural, it can't be, say, well, this actually was real history that somebody wrote as prophecy. I love what this guy, one of the guys said, he said, well, there was a pious forger, and this pious forger made up history that... Uh, it already happened to encourage the Jews. Well, that's not what it is. And we'll get into this next time. And we will see how it does picture what will happen. We're going to see the, uh, what happens when the, uh, on the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies plate, in the Holy of Holies that we have on the altar itself, the Ark of the Covenant, as it were. We have... Uh, this interesting guy, the little horn, Antiochus IV, he pours pig blood on it. You know, that thrilled everybody. And so we will deal with that next time. Okay, we will stop at that, but I want us to get this down. It is important. And we're going to see what happens to him and uh, what happens after that.